When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. When you begin to dehumanize people, you're no longer talking about them as people. You're talking about them as members of a class or a tribe, and you can do a whole lot to somebody once you no longer see them as a person. We've seen this in countless societies. It hasn't happened here, but that doesn't mean it never will. This is the sort of thing that I think you have to address really proactively, because when it becomes a real problem that is societal in scope, then it's too late. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Friday's episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today we have a special guest joining us. Noah Rothman is here to talk about his new book, Unjust, on the social justice movement. And I will tell you that I think we had a very nuanced conversation with Noah. What do you think, Sarah? I do. I was not mad at him when it was over. I feel like that's a good sign. I'm very excited to share it with all of you and to hear your feedback. Before we dive into the conversation with Noah, we want to call your attention to our event with the Wild Geese Bookshop in Franklin, Indiana. We are very excited to be joining them on 
Thursday, February 28th. You can find the details on our Facebook page. We'll be posting it again on Instagram and in our weekly email, as well as today's show notes. And Sarah is excited because we are going to be in Paducah. What, what? So I know like mm, a solid 75 to 80% of this audience is like, man, I really am going to have to go to Paducah one day because I talk about it and it's paradise on earth. So here's your chance. We're going to film a podcast at the McCracken County Public Library in downtown Paducah on Saturday, March 9th. Y'all, come to Paducah. We can all go to Freight House and meet Top Chef Sarah. It'll be such a good time. And my friend Jerry has a donut mm-hmm. store. In Munnell's Paducah Donuts. As well, Munnell's Donuts, yes. If you follow them on Instagram, you're going to want a donut every day of your life. Mm-hmm. We're going to go visit them. So it's going to be great. March 9th in Paducah, February 28th in Franklin, Indiana. Stay tuned for future cities and exciting developments. And we've seen on social media that y'all are reading our book. Thank you. And it makes every day brighter. Every day. The sun shines a little bit brighter when I get on social media and see y'all talking about our book. What really helps other people find the book beyond the shares on social media, which are essential, is Amazon reviews. So just copy and paste. Even one line is a review. Your social media review over on Amazon as a review for the book, and it will help more people find. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Without further ado, we are going to be joined by Noah Rothman. Noah writes frequently for Commentary Magazine. He has a new book out, Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. And we hope you enjoy this conversation. We are excited to have Noah Rothman on. Noah, I reached out to you because I have been a fan of your writing and commentary for quite some time, and we were about to do an event in Washington, D.C. about women in politics, and I really wanted to hear your perspective on women in the Republican Party. Little did I know that you were about to release a book about identity politics (laughs) and the problems with identity (laughs) politics. So I got even more excited about talking with you after we started diving into your new book, Unjust. So tell us about what prompted you to write this book. So like just about every other conservative blogger, I've been writing about the pernicious effects of identity politics on the social fabric and the dumbing down effect that it has on political discourse. And that was an especially unique. And I was approached to write a book about my thoughts on that. And I had only really considered how the effect of identity politics has condensed into what we now call social justice as an alternative governing theory, an alternative ethos that is in many ways in conflict with the American ideal after I took a trip to Ukraine, a government-sponsored junket to Ukraine, where we were treated by the uh, chief prosecutor of that country and the, and the administration that, uh, that I support in its efforts to uh, get out from under the Russian yoke. But it was a very disheartening conversation with that chief prosecutor because he explained to us rather pointedly that it was not in their administration's interest and therefore not in our interest to see them prosecute anyone who was involved in the violence in the Maidan revolution that overthrew the Ancien regime uh, who was engaged in violence on their side. And why should we want to see that? We're all on the same team. And this was no sort of justice that I was familiar with. It looked a lot more like revenge. And it was occurring to me that that is precisely how social justice would prefer to see Americans treat each other in the courts and in uh, in sort of a much more social sense, not as individuals, but as members of collective tribes who are suffering from or benefiting from historical conditions of which they may not even be aware. That's not justice. That is more like revenge. And that's sort of the ethos that has been adopted by social justice advocates who are increasingly putting pressure on American institutions to deliver things they cannot deliver 
retributive justice, downward social leveling, historical retribution that uh, that are simply not going to occur in the justice system as it is presently constituted. And that has a whole lot of really damaging psychic effects, as well as deleterious impacts on the social compact. I watched with interest your your viral Morning Joe moment. I thought that was a really wonderful conversation on the show, really as a, with your book as a jumping off point. And what I wanted to ask you about, because I, I thought the entire conversation was interesting, both sides. And what I, But I thought what was getting missed is when you say the sort of psychic effects of social justice and victimization and the loss of agency, I think there is truth to that. One of my, I know it's not a popular book to like anymore, but one of my favorite moments of J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, is when he says, you know, telling people that the government is the answer to every problem removes their agency and tell, but also telling people the government is every solution removes their agency too. And I thought that agency issue, which you guys touched a little bit on in that conversation is so interesting. I think what gets missed though, when you talk about the psychic effect of that victimization is there is an empowering, I can say this for my own personal experience. There is an empowering effect when someone says you're not crazy based on your identity as a woman, I can only speak to that particular identity, but based on your identity as a woman, there are some systematic issues going on. So I can understand why it seems like it would remove agency, but there is this weird sort of empowering moment you get, not as an individual, and and I don't think it's necessarily as a member of the group, but it's just, it's feeling like I'm not crazy. These things that I thought I was witnessing when I was not getting a fair shake I wasn't creating those. There are other people in this group that experiences that, that experience that. And at least I know the rules I'm playing under now. And so I feel like there's some, some part of that that was getting missed. Yeah. So when I go, and first of all, I don't know what's wrong with uh, J.D. Vance's book. It's a fantastic book. I don't know why anyone would say. <laughs> I feel like I get picked on. I feel like it's not popular on Twitter anymore, but whatever. That's wonderful. So I've recently you know, gone about doing this and talking with anybody and anybody who would be interested in talking with me about this book. And I experience uh, conversations with uh, center-left advocates of, for example, the philosophy of intersectionality, which places very prominently in identity politics as practiced by social justice advocates today, who say, just as you say, that these philosophies are empowering to me, that they provide me with a roadmap to navigate life. And that is valuable insofar as it provides you with self-actualization and racial and cultural awareness, demographic awareness. None of that is what I take issue with in my book. Uh, to do so would be to argue from a position of ignorance. Um, the philosophy of this particular line of th- thought, intersectionality in particular, um, has in practice become disempowering for people who apply it in it as a form of social organization. And probably the most prominent example of that phenomenon is how this philosophy tore the women's march apart. Intersectionality is a perfectly valid way of thinking about how prejudice manifests in the real world, how individuals uh, suffer from varying degrees of prejudice, which is doled out, again, in degrees based on individual accidents of birth. As an organizing philosophy that was adopted by the women's march, for example, it compelled its individuals to think of themselves as inhabiting a matrix of prejudice that is unnavigable, without the help of certain enlightened and elite power structures. It compelled its adherents to see its allies not as allies, based on their ideological predilections, but as varying degrees of adversary, based on their accidents of birth. So women who were white and Jewish, who maybe shared their predilections ideologically, weren't allies because they were white and Jewish. In the words of Tamika Mallory, they advanced 
white supremacy, whether they knew it or not. And this organization was compelled to embrace figures with no political constituency whatsoever, but to abandon them would be to uh, legitimize the prejudices against which they say they fight. So the Women's March embraced Asada Shakur, a convicted cop killer living as a fugitive from justice in Cuba, or the anti-Semitic minister, Louis Farrakhan. Again, they could have abandoned these people, but it would have been a sin against intersectionality. And in the process, they lost control over their influence within the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has had to abandon them as an institution in order to preserve their own influence. So this philosophy, while perhaps individually empowering, has forced them to abandon and to lose a lot of their political influence. And that's not empowering. It's an illusion of empowerment. What you just said helped me embrace some of your book more. When I first started reading the first chapter, I have a very strong reaction to the entire situation surrounding Justice Kavanaugh because of my personal life experiences. And I always try to check my my reaction to news against what is prompting this reaction and recognize that my personal life experiences do not involve Brett Kavanaugh, you know, and I have to put some space between those things. So I found myself trying to read your book paragraph by paragraph using that improv technique of yes and, you know, because I I didn't Mm want to just reject based on my own emotion about that particular incident. And as I did that, you always got to my and. And so when people hear you talk about social justice, I think it is important to point out that in the book, you are very careful to say, A lot of what you said to Sarah, that movements like Black Lives Matter start as part of the essential building blocks of our democracy, ways to move America closer to its ideal. And then there's kind of a tipping point where it becomes illiberal. Can you say more about that? Yeah, precisely. And that's thank you very much. I really appreciate that. That's one of the kinder things I've ever heard anybody say about the book. So when you talk to, for example, students, and I'm going around to colleges now, and you talk to them about the American ideal, the American ideal is sort of a frustrating notion for them. Because if all you ever know about the American ideal is that we've failed to live up to it, why would you think it's worth preserving? And that to me is frankly a misunderstanding of the very definition of the word ideal. Ideal is aspirational. It's never going to be achieved. But the fact that it is unachievable and that's utopian doesn't give you license to abandon the project. The operative word in the phrase, a more perfect union is not perfect, it's more. This is a project, an ongoing one. And as you said, and for example, the Black Lives Matter movement is very important because it has identified the ways in which, as the civil rights movement's leaders, appeal to our common sense of humanity and our common notions of idealized perfection and that we are failing to achieve them. Black Lives Matter movement most certainly originally, and in many ways still, appeals to that common sense of humanity and the common notions of egalitarian meritocratic, enlightened efforts to achieve America's founding ideals. But in practice, increasingly, the movement on the left that has embraced social justice has adopted ideas that are antithetical to the American experience. Ideals are ideas like the fact that meritocracy is a myth, that individual agency is a lie, that your destiny is in life is in many ways set by your accidents of birth. That separatism, racial, demographic, or otherwise, is good because it prevents social discomfort, and that colorblindness in institutions is naive at best and dangerous at worst. And the fact of the matter is that white supremacists believe all this stuff too. They're all on the same page. That's why this is a particularly noxious philosophy. It is not empowering, it is not compatible with the American ideal, and it renders its adherents rather paranoid because American institutions can't deliver 
the kind of stuff they think is absolutely necessary. So when you erect these moral imperatives in your mind and an American institutions are unresponsive, one of two things happens to you. One, you become very dispirited and disengage in politics because your efforts aren't worth it. Or more dangerously, you resolve to radicalize because these the institutions are so at foundation, immoral and unresponsive that they cannot be allowed to stand. And in my view, that's why we've seen so many activists on the far right and the far left, both of whom are committed to social justice nostrums, whether they know it or not, at each other's throats in the street, more political violence in the streets than we've seen in a generation. And I think that's a trend. I mean, I think that's really interesting. I would say yes. And because for me, as somebody on the left, I guess I, I feel my defense is coming up when you describe it as a movement on the left, because to me, when you're talking about the American ideal, I mean, our patron saints on the left, Barack Obama and Lin-Manuel Miranda, you're speaking their language, right? No other country on the earth hmm. is my story possible. The incomplete symphony, right? That this, you great unfinished symphony, that this is what we're striving for. And I don't, to me, you know, nothing is lost by saying we're, we're falling short. Nothing is lost when we say we cannot depend on the idea of a meritocracy and we can still strive for it. Like, I feel like there is, there is you know, what we would call it pantsuit politics grace in that space, in that space saying, yes, and yes, there's flaws. Our system is flawed. We, were, we had past sins that we have to acknowledge and look deeply in the face of and then move forward from there. And I don't disagree with you. I think there are extreme factions on both sides. But to me, they're not pointing the way. They're just red flags we need to pay attention to. Because if those messages are appealing, even as noxious as they are, and I don't disagree with you that they are, we don't need to shut them down and say, you're a problem for America. We need to say, okay, what are you, what are you illuminating for us? Why is this appealing to people? Why, what are the problems within the system that we're missing that these, that these ideologies are giving people a solution to? Well, it sounds like we're in agreement, but it's just a question of emphasis. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would suggest that it is imprudent at best to ignore or dismiss the effect of these fringes, because while they are fringy, they are nevertheless becoming more and more influential in our daily discourse, and the center is drawing more and more from these fringes on both sides of the aisle. And what we're what we're both in agreement here in is that the effect of the American ideal on social institutions is that we must strive towards individuality above all. And increasingly, the social justice left and right do not believe that. They don't believe in individuality. Individuality is a lie. It is collective. That is imperative, that we must, we must affect for the trials and the suffering and the benefits that are accrued to or endured by the collective. And that is what is the most deleterious aspect of this new phenomenon, because it is fundamentally impossible to realize, first of all, and it has those dangerous psychic effects on you. And second of all, the effect of abandoning the notion that positive discrimination based on individual extenuating circumstances, mitigating circumstances is unacceptable, is un unproductive, and that you need to address the effects of whole tribes or the effects that are suffered by and endured by whole classes of people is when you begin to dehumanize people. You're no longer talking about them as people. You're talking about them as members of a class or a tribe. And you can do a whole lot to somebody once you no longer see them as a person. We've seen this in countless societies. It hasn't happened here, but that doesn't mean it never will. This is the sort of thing that I think you have to address really proactively, because when it becomes a real problem that is societal in scope, 
then it's too late. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's almost like we're having a crisis in calibration. We talked about this a lot around Thanksgiving. You know, as people become more familiar with the history, the kind of unfiltered version of how America was discovered, how do you face that history head on and, and still celebrate Thanksgiving and have a good time and bring a sense of lightness and joy to things? And and I feel like a lot of what you described in, in your book is that calibration problem where we recognize, yes, there are injustices and we can still live our lives. And, and it's not that we are content with our progress, 
but we also have to recognize our progress, that we are moving forward. Maybe it's not fast enough for everyone, and there are problems embedded in our assessments of that, but we have to calibrate these things in some way instead of just tearing away at each other over the problems that remain. So the fact of the matter is that when you talk explicitly about racial progress, for example, one of the things that I say in this book that is a phenomenon that is greeted with a whole lot of consternation and dismissal and disapproval is the objective, demonstrable fact that there has been racial progress in this country over the last half century. Uh, That's pretty hard to deny. But for a particular class of social justice advocate, it is a totally toxic thing to say, not because it's untrue, but because it might empower people who are opposed to the notion that there is more progress yet to be made, that we have more, we have st- still have progress to go and ways to go. That's not a productive way to think about objectivity. You know, if objectivity becomes the enemy of a political program, it's not the objectivity that has to go. And in the history of, of retributive social justice in this country, which is in the second chapter of the book, I describe them many ways in which sort of extrajudicial institutions that are designed to affect reconciliation across whole classes are sometimes justified. And there's a lot of academic literature on this. And it is applied most usually around the world and even in this country in the, in the case of being a post-conflict society, in a society that is struggling to reconcile either from a, an armed conflict, a civil armed conflict, or sort of a, a gross misuse of, of uh, centralized power that resulted in uh, real abuses, human rights abuses, what have you, that's when you appeal to these extrajudicial institutions that uh, are meant to affect some form of reconciliation. But the United States today is not a post-conflict society. And that's another thing that I think the social justice advocates on the left would recoil at, the notion which is objective and very difficult to develop a comprehensive and, uh, and responsible argument against, is that the United States today is basically a post-conflict society, that we will never emerge from the form of conflict that is racial and demographic prejudice and grievance, and that there must be some forms of extrajudicial methods to to address the, the flaws in the American justice system. And by way of example, I would cite the post the status quo that emerged in the post-2011 period after Barack Obama's Dear Colleague letter. The Dear Colleague letter was rooted in social justice theory. It said it described for colleges and universities ways in which they can adjudicate claims of sexual violence on campus that address them in a more broad fashion than the courts do. The thinking there is that the American justice system defines sexual assault too narrowly, and it imposes on alleged victims conditions that are intolerable. The claim that they must confront their accuser in court is too traumatic. The evidentiary standards for conviction are too high. And so they developed these extrajudicial institutions in, on campuses that would adjudicate these claims. And when those verdicts were examined by real courts, they found that accuser and accused alike often had their first, fifth, and sixth amendment rights abridged. That's not justice, not justice as we understand it in this country. That's much more like vengeance, much more like collective retribution. And it's not justice. It's fundamentally unjust. I wonder, though, when you say that the emphasis on the sort of the tribal is a, is a problem because the country is built on so much individualism. Again, I wonder, though, if, if, if we turn it ever so slightly and we look at it in a different way, if it, is a, if it is a hunger that does need to be met among other human beings that we've gotten away from this country, which is connection and community. And we've tried to find that through Twitter wars, which I do not disagree is a bad approach. 
But I do think, again, those extremes are calling for a need. And I don't think it's a need just in the extremes on either party. I think it surfaces in a more extreme way in either party. But I think that need for community and connection and a group beyond your individual self and that individual desires or ambitions or goals or whatever is there. And so I wonder if that the calibration Beth was talking about is achievable. Can we can we find a way to calibrate in such a multicultural country a desire for connection and a need for individualism and meritocracy? Yeah, sure. Don't get me wrong. I'm no Randian. I am not saying that individualism is the ultimate flowering of human ambition. It's not. Individual community-level mediating institutions are absolutely critical to the development of a healthy community. And you increasingly have a conversation on the right, whether it's Tim Carney at Washington Examiner or Senator Ben Sass or what have you. Uh, So many voices are now emphasizing the importance of community-level institutions, churches, what have you, not secular institutions like uh, community centers. These are imperative to allowing individuals to set down roots, divorcing them from their screens, giving them an opportunity to escape without appealing to uh, intoxicants. These are the sort of things that are absolutely imperative for a healthy human being. The distinction that we're drawing on here is in the judicial system. The justice system is not a mediating institution. The justice system has one imperative, and that is to deliver justice. And all that justice as we understand it, uh, originating from English common law, uh, has a a certain amount of certain precepts that we have not improved upon, among them egalitarian ideals like the presumption of innocence. Um, This is an enemy. This is an enemy concept to social justice advocates on the left and the right. The idea that individuals and individuals alone are responsible for their own circumstances is is a fundamental problem for social justice advocates on the left and the right. And we saw that in the collective response, for example, most recently to Jesse Smollett's story. Jesse Smollett wasn't an individual. He wasn't a victim. His accusers weren't individuals. They weren't responsible for their lots in life. This was a collective problem. This was a societal sickness that had been exposed as a result of these individual actions. Those individuals were bit players. It was a medieval morality play in which these individuals weren't really people at all. They were representative of collective forces. That's not justice. That's something much different. Maybe it's because we just don't have a great, you know, when a, when people feel divorced from the political system, and I'm trying to think of some other institutions where we could play this out, we put the burden for everything, for all morality, for all systematic changes and course corrections on a justice system built for individuals. I don't disagree with that. I think it's too much pressure for that system. It's not what it was built for. Yeah, and I think this is probably a direct development of sort of the the expectations that social justice, current currently constituted social justice thinking places on the public sector. It expects it to deliver a lot of things that it cannot deliver. And so you develop a lot of expectations and moral assumptions that cannot be met. And when they're not met, you have a real lashing out as a result of that. Look, social justice itself is a noble concept, and it's got a pretty robust foundation to it that its activists may not even be aware. It originates out of the Catholic Church in the 19th century as kind of an alternative theory of organization to compete with the largely secular Protestant Enlightenment. That was mostly about charity, but it had some collectivist elements to it. John Rawls put some meat on these bones when he talked about thinking about justice as basically like it's a finite commodity and developing a theory of justice that would ascribe to institutions the province of distributing justice in an enlightened fashion, but to do so from behind a theoretical construct he called the veil of ignorance. So the enlightened distributor 
wouldn't be able to satisfy their own biases. The modern social justice movement has no use for the veil of ignorance. That is a morally obtuse concept. How can you have an enlightened distribution if you do not know who the objects of your distribution are going to be, who is oppressed, who deserves to be lifted up, who deserves a comeuppance? That is the modern incarnation of social justice that I think is so toxic and so deleterious because it compels its, its adherents not to think of people as people, but as collective representatives of either oppressed or oppressor who deserve to be uh, thought of not as individuals, not as people, but as pawns in a much larger game. Uh, and that's a really dangerous way of thinking. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your 
problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. That kind of brings me around to where I had planned to start in initially reaching out to you. Now, I want to ask you before we let you go, where you think the Republican Party should go from here as you've considered these concepts carefully? Because I find one of the reasons people are so resistant to me when I identify myself as from the right or as a disaffected Republican, as I often say right now, the reaction to that becomes, well, you must ascribe to viewpoints that are misogynistic or racist or anti-LGBTQ, none of which could be further from the truth, because the party as a whole, I think, has this perception of saying, well, we don't want to be the social justice left, therefore we're going to deny the problems exist at all. Same thing with climate. We're not here on the Green New Deal, so we're going to deny climate change. And I just wonder what you think is the the direction for the party that acknowledges where there are challenges and offers some solutions that stay in the healthy calibration, you know, that we've been talking about. Yeah, well, I think conservatism properly understood is pretty hostile towards these disempowering notions of victimization that have been misconstrued as some sort of self-actualizing, empowering phenomena. Um, Donald Trump came along and uh, adopted many of the social justice left's prescriptions for creating a durable political coalition when he told his, his supporters that basically their lots in life were not of their own making that the obstacles in their path were put there by condescending elites who not only looked down on them, but discriminated against them, that labor from abroad had made products of their labors undesirable, and that unfair competition from foreign sources had uh, had robbed them of their due. All this stuff is pretty powerful. To, to surrender to the notion that you are not the master of your own destiny is ironically a very empowering notion. And it's the sort of thing that was philosophically alien to conservatism up until 2016. And that is, I hope, in my fondest hope, that this book helps the right in a sort of a subversive fashion. I mean, they're getting into this book thinking that it's an attack on the left, and it is, but not entirely. They've adopted quite a few of these really dangerous ideals. And it's my hope that at the end of this book, the social justice movement on the right becomes much more apparent to conservatives who have made accommodation with a lot of these forces and begins to look like a really dangerous accommodation that's ultimately not in their own interests and certainly not conducive to a politically healthy environment. The book is Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. Noah Rothman, thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Noah Rothman. Noah had a little viral moment as I was discussing in the interview on Morning Joe. And fun fact, we've also been on Morning Joe today, this morning, as you're hearing this podcast on Friday, we were on the live broadcast of Morning Joe, which we will be sharing the links with on social media so you can check it out and share away. We were, it, we were really excited. We are so grateful for the opportunity and we hope you guys enjoy the interview. On Tuesday's episode, we're going to be joined by Courtney Hill, who has a firm that recruits African-American women to run for office. And we're really excited to talk with Courtney about that effort. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks 
for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.